Good morning. My name is Rich Lee, and I'm attached to the woman that was here before. So my duty this morning is to fill in for John and apparently preach the second sermon. She did the first one for us. I think she did a great job. But we're going to continue our series in Colossians. We've been walking through for a couple of months now. Our series firmly established. If you haven't been with us before, we're walking a little bit verse by verse through this great letter that Paul wrote to this small country church in the little town of Colossae in the area of what we now know as Turkey, eastern Turkey. And as we walk through this uh, firmly established, it can mean a lot of things, but ultimately it's we're firmly established in Christ. But this is also all about relationships. So today we're talking about firmly established in all of our relationships. And relationships are, are, can be touchy, they can be beautiful, but they can also be struggling. So we're going to talk about that and how that plays out uh, in, in everything we do and everything we say. So if you would take your Bibles or your phone, scroll to or turn to chapter 4 of the book of Colossians. Chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 2 through 6 here in a few moments. But before we do, to set us up, I'm going to, I'm going to steal off of Pastor Dave. He went back there to get some coffee. He loves his movie references, so I'm going to do one too. I'm going to try it out. So be, bear with me. We just walked through the, the, the whole Top Gun Maverick thing and... Looking back to that 1986 great movie, but we're not going to talk about Top Gun. We're going to talk about the next movie, I believe it's the next movie that Tom, Tom Cruise made. Tom Cruise and Dustin Hoffman in 1988, they, they worked in a, and put together a movie called Rain Man. If you haven't seen it, I highly encourage it. There's some controversy in it. We would probably shoot it a little bit different today, but the acting in this movie is fantastic. And when you, when you watch this movie, you'll see that it's all about relationships. The struggles of relationships and the victories in relationships as well. And God is walking us through this text today, and it is about relationships. So if, we, if you would, and turn him with me through Colossians 4, 2 through 6. Paul writes, Continue steadfastly in prayer being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door to us, open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm a prisoner, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Let's pray. Father, as we uh, open up your text this morning, Father, I ask that you help us to walk through it truthfully, walk through it honestly, Lord. Help us to understand it a little bit better. Help us to make application to our lives that we walk out of here fundamentally changed of who we are. Father, I pray that as we walk through this, we don't just see this as a list of good things to do, that we might have some good friends around us but we're able to enter into relationships with others that they may see the light of Christ in us, that we may be enticing, we may, we may, we may influence them to heed and listen to God's call on their lives as we have ours. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So in that 1988 movie, we see Tom Cruise as Charlie Babbitt. And Charlie, we see, is struggling in his relationships, like probably many of, many of us have in times in our lives. 
He had a strained relationship with his father. His father dies. And through reading of that will, Charlie finds out his father, who was very rich, had a lot of wealth, all Charlie got in that inheritance when he was waiting to get it all was some rose bushes. So imagine if you had a very rich father and all they left you was some bushes. Well, we see Charlie's a little bit angry. He finds out that the executor of the state has control of the money. So he goes and visits with him, and he learns that all the, all the wealth has been given to Charlie's older brother that he did not know even existed. Raymond, played by Dustin Hoffman, when you watch the movie, is severely autistic. And he's in a, he's in a in-care facility, and, he's, and Charlie becomes mad because how come this guy gets everything and I don't? And so he, he hatches a scheme because Charlie's always about, as we see about himself, and he actually kidnaps Raymond. And he's going to hold him kind of ransom until the, the executor gives him a little bit of the inheritance. And they go off on this cross-country trip, and things don't go quite Charlie's way, but he finds out, they're getting to know his brother, that his brother, although he seems to be this guy who can't really have a relationship with anybody or think through things, is, has some unique gifts that God had given him. He's very good with numbers. So Charlie has this scheme. He's going to take him to Vegas. He says, okay, here's how I'm going to get my money. Because his brother, he learns, can count cards very quickly. So he hatches this scheme that he's going to cheat Vegas and get a bunch of money from there, and all things. And after that, things going to be beautiful and wonderful. What we learn is Charlie's struggle, and not only his relationship with his father, but his relationship with everybody. We see it with his girlfriend and his friends, and with Raymond, his brother. And he uses his brother to get something for him. Now, I think if we're honest, there's some relationships in our lives that we've, at one point in time, you've probably used somebody to get something you needed. Or you know people who do that. And God is calling us to a higher standard through these verses. And it may, it may seem kind of a little out of joint here, but God is saying, hey, I need you to go into the world because I've called you to do something different. So our big point today, if we could pull that up, our big idea, what I want you to see out of this text is God is always present, and we are his ambassadors. God is always present, and we are his ambassadors. In this passage, Paul is concluding what looks like the third movement in this, this short little book. It's only four chapters long. There's three movements. He's at the end of the third one. And I think what these six or five verses are is really the conclusion and the summary of his entire chapter or his entire book. Now, next week, John's going to walk through the, next, the following verses where Paul is going to really write his salutation. He's going to talk about a bunch of people, and there's some great things to pull out of that as a, as a church, as a congregation, so this is not the end of the series. But this is what I'm calling is, is, the, is really the final part of Paul doing what, what I'm calling his imperative teaching. Imperative, I mean, do this, don't do this. Be like this, don't do this. Don't be a jerk. Be a nice person, because there's a purpose and a reason for that. So just to quickly catch you up, I mentioned he's at the end of, third move, of his third movement. Chapter 1, like Paul does in many of his uh, letters, he lays out all kinds of theology at the beginning, and then he makes it very practical at the end. And that's, it's no different here. In Colossians chapter 1, which if you haven't read it in a while, I encourage you to do so. It's a beautiful passage. And the language he uses is, is, for me, it's just wonderful. It's beautiful. And he talks about who we are and who Jesus is. And he talks about that 
He's praying for us that we would grow into this knowledge and wisdom of the mystery of Christ. This mystery promised all through the Old Testament for ages to come is now revealed in Jesus Christ our Lord. And because of that, because He is the creator and the sustainer of all things, and He is worthy to be our redeemer. And because we are redeemed, He's our king. Jesus is preeminent over all things. Not just preeminent in status as a king, but he's also preeminent in theology and philosophy and culture and the best things we can think of. There's the things that we create as humans, and then there is God in Christ way up here. And there's this verse in chapter 1, which is, I think, so beautiful, and Dave mentioned it earlier. Because of his preeminence, it's not just about that God gets all of his glory and we're just down here just servants. That God reaches down and he pulls us out of the domain of darkness and he places us into the kingdom of his redemptive son. So there's your theology of the first, the first movement. And then we go into chapter 2. And this is where Paul gets a little philosophical. And he's saying, hey, Colossae Church, there's going to be all these things around you. You're new Christians. And there's philosophies. There's different religions, and they are counter to what we're teaching you. So beware. Don't get pulled off by half-truths. Stick to the truth that we've laid out in chapter 1, as well as the other letters in our whole New Testament that we have the, the privilege to have today to walk through. And this is what we find in chapter 2, what is our central verse, our foundational verse through our, through our series of firmly established. If we could pull up, there it is, chapter 2, verse 6 through 7. So this is what we've been walking through. Uh, I think we've mentioned it every Sunday. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in Him. That's kind of similar to what he says in this passage. In verse 5 of chapter 4, he says, Walk in wisdom towards outsiders. So walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So there's a parallel in there. You can see a little bit of what Paul's talking about in the summary. He talks about praying with thanksgiving. He's talking about walking. But we're going to come back to this in a few minutes and talk about this rooted and built up and established. He's just calling us to focus on walking with God. And then he goes into chapter 3 and 4, and this is where it gets real practical. And he, he leads us through a discussion and instruction on the inner workings of how we're to walk in this mystery of Christ. And he says, hey, church, not only do you need to be aware of what's going on around you, the philosophies, the different ideas, the culture, which is no different than what we experience today here in the United States of America in Virginia Beach. We've got all kinds of different philosophies going on. And if you notice the flyers that are going by airplanes, different philosophies. He's saying, put off the old self. If you're in Christ, stop dragging that old self around. Although, until God calls us, it's going to be there. That's going to be the... That little voice that comes up and says, does God really God? Say, put that off and put on the new self in Christ. Put on the new attitude, the new heart. The way you interact with every single person should be fundamentally changed. Because it's all about relationships. And then he walks through, uh, as Dave and John did in the past couple of weeks, how we're to interact with one another in the church setting, in the community setting. How we're interacting in our homes husbands and wives, how we're to interact with our children, how we're to interact in the marketplace with being masters and bond servants. That should be different for Christians who know Christ. He says, focus on all your relationships, and he gets to this summary statement. And he says, I need you to, to pray 
steadfastly and walk. Pray and walk because the times can be ugly. And the reason he's doing this is he's, is he's reminding us of what we are to do as Christians. When Jesus said, go into all the nations, making disciples and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Because God is saying, I need you, church. I want you, church, to go out and do my mission. And the mission goes all the way back to the Old Testament, this mystery where he promised David. He said, David, from you will become one of your sons, will sit on the throne forever, and through him all the nations will be blessed. Now, we didn't quite understand all that, how that was going to work out, but Jesus said, I am that son. Now, in God, in his infinite wisdom and his all-powerfulness, he could do this by himself. He could snap his fingers because he snapped his fingers and spoke and the world was created. He could bring everyone to an understanding of salvation knowledge in him. But that would be more like a dictator. We would lose our free will. And God says, I can do that, but I choose to use you. I choose to use the good news of Christ. And I choose to use you as a witness for me, but also as an ambassador. So let's pull up that Ephesians chapter 6 verse. We're going to read this in a second. What I want you to understand is Ephesians and Colossians, there's a lot of parallels in them. And there's parallels for reasons because Paul is writing these about the same time to two different churches that are only about 100 miles apart, about the same period. So the cultural difference between like really here in Richmond is not that different. That's kind of the way it was for the Ephesus and Colossae. So it's a lot of parallels. But the, the text we just read in Colossians, I want you to think through it. Maybe I'll have it open, and let's read through this. He says this in Ephesians, after he's talked about put on the armor of God, and he says, pray at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. A lot of prayer language in here. And also for me, Pray for me, that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I'm an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. I love this idea of being an ambassador. He doesn't use that word in Colossians, but he uses it in the parallel verse, and I think the Spirit is in the Colossians verse. So what is an ambassador? I mentioned earlier that, that Jesus said in Acts, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the other ends of the, world, of the world. So we have this mix of a witness and an ambassador. And both of them are good. We are both. But the difference is a witness answers questions. You observe an event, and somebody in authority is going to ask you questions. Tell me the who, what, where, why, and how, and you're going to answer it. They may ask you to write a statement. You may give a little bit more detailed information, but it's more of a, a question and answer thing for a witness. You all catching on? An ambassador does not wait for the questions. We have ambassadors of the United States of America to other countries, and they're appointed by the President of the United States. And some of them are political, completely political appointees who do good things for the President and get them elected. Those, those kind of ambassadors typically are sent to really nice places that don't have a lot of strategic impact. You know, they're, they're the United States ambassador to Barbados. 
I don't think that basher is having a hard time. It's kind of nice down there. Or Grenada, or pick any other beautiful little island where they're ambassador to. But think about who is the President of the United States and the State Department. Who are they picking to be their ambassador to strategically important places like maybe France, Germany, Russia, China? He's not picking people who just did things for him. They're going to pick very significant people who understand our country and our people. He doesn't send them out there empty-handed. He's going to give them a strategic vision of where our country is going to go. The strategic interest of our nation. And that ambassador is not just going to parrot and repeat. They're not just going to be a, a witness answering questions. They're going to engage the culture, engage that government, because they know what's in the hearts and the minds, in theory, of our president, the State Department, and the United States people. They're not just our representatives. They're actually our mouthpiece. And when they speak, they speak for the power of the people under the Constitution of the United States of America because they have a strategic vision. God is calling us to be ambassadors as well. And you, we read it twice. Paul is happy to be an ambassador for Christ even though he's in chains. So the Lord here provides us in this text. I want you to we'll draw them out in a second. Two directives to be effective ambassadors. Let's bring up the first one. First, verse 2 tells us we are to connect constantly with God. Go back to verse 2 and take a look at it. He says, continue. He doesn't say sometimes in prayer when you eat. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. What's he talking about there? How do we do that? The wording there, he's saying, be wide awake about it. Be on mission. Be engaged. Be thankful for what God has called you to do. Now, some of us, when we were growing up, you learned little prayers, short little prayers. Uh, maybe prayers, you say the same thing over your dinner. And there's nothing wrong with those prayers. They, glow, they bring us closer to God. But Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, is saying, hey, you can have those prayers, but I need you to go into your prayer closet. Don't look for the praise of people because you're eloquent standing up in front of people praying. There needs to be times that you are alone with God and you are meditating on His Word and you're spending time with Him so that you can get His strategic vision because you're His ambassador. He's talking about a quality time. He's talking about having our eyes deeply focused on who He is. When I grew up, I was, uh, I've never been really athletically inclined. My wife is. But I remember I was a little guy. I was probably five or six years old, and I was learning to play t-ball. And I remember my father teaching me how to catch. And I think many of y'all have been there. If you're little kids here, you're probably there right now. you got the glove in your hand, and you got to get the ball that's coming at you in that glove. And you've probably seen little kids who kind of stick it like this, and it's very awkward, and they do like this, right? And the ball lands right here. I remember my father saying, son, watch the ball into the glove. Watch the ball into the glove. Watch it till it hits. I didn't really understand what that meant. I just looked at my glove and the ball still hit here. <laughs> right? So I had to learn to watch the ball all the way into the glove. That's what Paul was saying here in your prayer life. Be with God on strategic vision and watch that prayer all the way into your heart. But that takes time and that takes a little bit of commitment. He says be steadfast. Be about it. But how do we do that? How do we practically do that? When we could be on our knees in a prayer position. He says, 
in Thessalonians, he says, pray without ceasing. Well, that's not really practical because at some point in time, we've got to eat, and we've got to go to work, and we've got to interact with other people. And through church history, we've had people who do nothing but pray. We call call them monks. They're great because they're really close to God, but are they close to people? Both John and Dave have have talked about this idea of having this vertical worship relationship with God and this horizontal connection with people. It takes both. So how do we have this deep prayer life and we're constantly in it? Well, it it takes this idea of... and pulled our uh, Ephesians down, but praying without ceasing, being in an attitude in our hearts with prayer. There are times we need to be intently focused on prayer with God, connecting with Him, so that when we get into the moments where we need Him, it's automatic. I spoke a um, a couple weeks ago about, my sermon illustration was about, uh, through the whole thing, Vince Lombardi and his team. Green Bay Packers, and he worked through them about the fundamentals. He held up and said, gentlemen, at the beginning of training season, this is a football. He's going back to the fundamentals. So that when he got into the game, they knew the fundamentals well. So we need to practice those fundamentals of prayer, getting it into us, so that when we enter into any situation, it comes out automatically and naturally. Let's go to the quote from uh, Brother Lawrence. Brother Lawrence was a, uh, one of these monks who spent his time in prayer. We thought he spent his time in prayer. This is the 1600s. Brother Lawrence grew up as a peasant. He was never educated. His parents were very poor. And the only thing he could do at those time, at that time was get conscripted into the army and fight in the 30-year war. So all you historians out there, for those of you who are like your Western Civ, go back and read about the 30 years war. It was brutal. By the time he was 26 years old, he had been in battle and been wounded four separate times to the point he was lame. And I can imagine during those days in the 1600s, there wasn't a whole lot of antibiotics, there wasn't life flights, and there probably wasn't a shock trauma platoon with him. So by the time he was 26, he was lame, he couldn't do anything, so he just he joined a monastery. And he became a cook in the monastery. And from the time he was 26 years old until he was died at 77 years old, he lived there and he cooked. There was a point when he couldn't cook anymore, so they said, okay, well, you can make the sandals. So all that time, he cooked or he made sandals. Pretty humble life. But what he did was he established this time of prayer and connection with God. This simple man, after his death, his fellow monks took all of his pithy little sayings and this connection with God, and they put it into a book that's still on sale today. The practice in the presence of God. And this is a quote from it. And think about he's, he's in his kitchen and he's cooking. And I know many of y'all have been there. You've had... You're trying to get some stuff done in the kitchen, and, and your kids are just, I want this, I want that, I want this, I want that, and the smoke alarm's going off, and it's busy. That's where he's in. The time of busyness does not differ with me from the time of prayer. And the noise and the clatter of my kitchen, while several persons are at the same time calling for different things, I possess God in as great a tranquility as if I were on my knees." This doesn't develop in the moment. This develops in the quiet time. This, moment, this develops in this, this sets and reps of prayer time and communing with God so that when you get into the furnace, it comes back. It's there. That's what I believe what Paul is talking about, praying without ceasing, being steadfast, being engaged in it. 
in those moments, it only takes a split second to say a, sm- a short little prayer. God, this is, this, is, this is heavy. I don't know what to do here. Just guide me. It's that willing submission. The Old Testament has a good story about this. The, the prophet Daniel, he tells a story about these three guys. Maybe you've heard of them. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I heard a pastor here recently. I, I love this. He said they were, they were good Jewish boys that had good government jobs. They had a pretty good life. They were in Babylon. They were serving the king. They were smart. They were sharp. They were some of the king's best. But the king decided, as kings do and tyrants do, he, he changed the rules. And he said, hey, I'm going to set myself up as God. You're going to worship me now, and you've got to eat the food I give you, not the food that you want. And they said, ah, that food is uh, it's contrary to our Jewish laws. We can't do that. And the king said, either you do it, or you're going to die. So in that moment, they said, we cannot violate what God tells us to do. So I'll fast forward through the story because it's a really interesting one. They throw them into the furnace. And they look in there to see how, how gruesomely they're dying and all that stuff. But they see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and it says a fourth figure in the furnace with them. There's God with them. Because they had been with God before they got to the furnace. They went in there willingly. They went in there. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say they were happy about it, but they were obedient. Now, they survived miraculously. But what about you? Are you going to wait until you get challenged by someone in the culture with a half-truth? Or are you going to be in time and prayer with God and be ready to answer in that moment? So Brother Lawrence, Shadrach, and Meshach, and Abednego, they had an attitude of submission, a position of seeing God in all things, in all situations, whether they understood it or not. God is calling us to do the same thing, remembering our, our root verse. Walk and know that you're rooted, you're built up, and you're established in the faith by God. God's calling us to walk. Colossians 2, 6 and 7, God does the rooting, God does the establishing, God does the building up in faith. He has qualified you. When everything around us in our culture and the philosophies of the day are trying to disqualify you, God has qualified you to remember that. So God is constantly present. We connect with Him. Let's go to the next one, our second point. We are to connect with the world with the right motives and intentionality. Connect constantly with God, connect with the world and the culture with the right motives and intentionality. Let's look at verse 5 and 6. Where, verse 5, we see the second imperative, the second teaching, the second command that Paul says. He says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech be gracious. We always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Back up in verse 3 and 4, Paul is, Paul is asking to pray that he would have this idea of how he ought to answer. And he's saying, you also walk in wisdom so you know how you may answer each person. He's talking about relationships here. And he's saying these relationships that, that he has established with us, we are to mimic that and be his ambassadors for him. This idea of walking in wisdom, it's an idiom, which means that how you con- con- conduct your life and the content of what you say. It's everything we say and we do in our attitudes. Are we reflecting Christ or are we reflecting ourselves? Are we ambassadors for Christ or are we Charlie Babbitt going after selfish things for ourselves? 
And then it's got this beautiful word, Sophia, in here, the wisdom. And what's interesting, he's, he, he qualifies this walk, whereas in the, the earlier verse we read, it says, walk, you walk with Christ. Here he says, walk with wisdom. And what he's saying is, as you grow in this knowledge and understanding of God and seeing this bigger picture that Jesus is the mystery from the Old Testament, now playing out in our lives, and we're part of that, he's saying, I need you to be wise because the culture around us is going to try to pull you away. Be shrewd in a good way. Be clever. Be aware so that when you hear things that are quite, you know, 98% true, they sound good, but when you look at text of Scripture, it doesn't quite add up that you're able to see it very quickly. It goes back to, are you the ambassador to Barbados? Are you the ambassador to Russia? God's calling us to be the ambassador to Russia, to be not numerically older or mature, but to be spiritually mature. And we do that through the prayer, the sets and reps, preparing for the game, because God's going to put us in the game. And to prove it to you, I guarantee someone in, in this room, maybe every one of you, have had a strain in a relationship sometime this week. Whether it's a work relationship, a, a spouse relationship, a girlfriend, boyfriend, a child, something in there has been tested. Right? If not, it's coming about 20 minutes from now. Get ready. The game is coming. God wants to remind us that the foundation is Christ. And he says that in the beginning God created. So who, this is who we're ambassadors for. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and His Spirit was hovering over the deep. And John, in his gospel, says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God, and He was the agent of creation. And further down in that chapter, he says, And the Word, this Logos, became flesh and dwelt among us. This is the foundational things that we need to remember. And because the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, He's redeemed us and moved us, transformed us from that domain of darkness and put us into his beautiful kingdom, and now we're his ambassadors. These are the verses that are our football. These are the things we need to remember so that when times get tough and our emotions overcome us, go back to what we know, go back to the truths that we, we have. But look at the verse 5 and 6, actually verse 6. It says, we engage people. He says, let your speech, speech let your speech, if I get that out, Always be gracious and seasoned with salt so that it's appealing to others. There's a, a great professor right now up at Westminster Seminary, R. Kent Hughes. I like to read a lot of things he writes. and He says that this idea of grace in your speech presupposes grace in your heart. So as you enter into these connections with people, check your heart. Are you about the other person in this relationship or are you Charlie Babbitt? We've all been Charlie Babbitt at some point in time and been selfish. Paul was saying, season your salt, season with salt your speech and be gracious so that when you enter into a relationship with someone, it's about them. We'll talk about some practical things in a minute. Jesus said, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of the good treasure brings forth good. What is the condition of your heart? Speech that it should be savory, you know, and who's ever been to like their mom's house or a friend's house and you had, you had either a steak or you had, you had some soup and you taste it and you're like, it's a little bland. What do you put in it? Salt to season it. 
You, make, you do that so it's savory, it's attractive, it tastes good. So should our content of who we talk to people about. What we talk about should have meaningful contact, it should be joyful, it should be all about the other person and never about you. We struggle with that because we're, we're fallen and sinful people and, we're, and we become selfish at times. We all do it. But pray through these times and make it about the other person. My mom always told me, if you don't have anything good to say, don't say anything at all. I'm like, that's pretty good, Mom. That's pretty good. Recently, I was on a flight uh, back from really kind of South Carolina area. I was flying up to, to Dulles, and there was, a, there was a guy on this flight. It was a very short flight, you know, about an hour, hour and a half at the time we boarded. But as soon as we boarded, he's sitting in front of me, and he starts engaging in conversation with the lady next to him. And she's actually across the aisle, so he's having talk kind of loud, and I can hear everything he's saying, um, and he's engaging with her on very superfluous things, and I quickly realized he's very, he's very attracted to this lady, and she's being nice, and she's kind of, you know, not really engaging too much, but she's responding to him, but this guy talked the entire flight, and it was like a motor mouth. He did not stop. I'm trying to read, and I was probably not really honest in my prayer, and my prayer was, God, please just shut this guy up, because he's so distractive. And then about three quarters of the way through the flight, about the time we land, I heard the guy behind me whisper to the guy next to him, I'll give you $100 for your noise-canceling headsets, so I don't have to hear this guy. And I thought, wow, that's not the way we should be as Christ followers. We should engage people where it's attractive, that people want to hear what you have to say, and that you're more interested in them than they are in you. Let your, let your speech be seasoned with salt. Have you ever experienced someone like that? Have you ever experienced a, someone in your life that's it's, it's all about them? Well, if you're in a relationship, I guarantee you at one point in time they thought that about you. So let's be honest, let's be real, and let's be prayerfully walking with God through this. There's also, also a piece of this, this verse here. He says, making the best use of the time. It's kind of a strange phrase. But let me tell you, let me talk about this, this phrase. So as you inter interact with somebody, it says the best use of the time. How many, how many words in English do we have for time? Anybody? One word. Time. It's time to go. What time is it? There's quality time. It's time for a season. It's time for dinner. It's time for bed. It's only one. In Greek, there's two. There's the word chronos, where we get the word chronometer, which is what most of us think of time. And then there's this word, it's kairos, and it's the quality time. And we, we use it as, hey, I need quality time with my spouse or my friends, or I need quality time with myself or God. That's kairos time. Which one do you think Paul uses here? What's that? He uses kairos. He says, making the best use of the kairos. That's the quality time. So as you engage every individual as a Christ follower, as a really just a really good person who, who's considered of others, try to make it instead of chronos time into kairos time. And let me give you an illustration because we all it happens to every one of us. Let's uh, think about where you work, or the neighborhood you live in, or the grocery store you go to all the time, or where you buy your gas. 
I guarantee you, you probably see this about the same people every day or every time you go. And you may not know who they are. It may be that person who works down the hall that you kind of know who they are. You might know their name, but you pass three or four times a day going to get something to drink or going to the bathroom. Y'all with me? This happened to y'all? And what do we usually say to those people? You walk in down the hall, there's no one there, no one else there. You know you got to say something because it's awkward, right? So we usually say, hey, good morning, afternoon, whatever it is. And what's the next thing out of our mouth? Good morning. How are you? It just flows right out, right? How many of y'all just keep right on walking? Hey, how are you? You keep on walking, right? What's the normal American cultural thing we say in response to that? What's the other person say? Good. I'm good, right? I'm good. Are they? Maybe. I guarantee you probably 40% of the time they're not good. How many of y'all have asked somebody, you had that encounter, you say, hey, good morning, how are you? And they go, uh... I'm okay. Now you're in a moral dilemma, right? Because you're, walk, you're working on Kronos time. you got something to do. you got to get to the thing. But now this person has now opened up that door, and you have a choice. Now, I have failed this many times, and I've just said, okay, well, have, have a better morning. You just keep on going. We've all done that, haven't we? God is saying, Take the best use of that, chron- that kairos time. If you're going to engage somebody, be intentful. Have content with it. If you're going to ask them how they are, don't do it as you're walking by. Actually stop and say, how are you? And be ready to listen. Be ready to have that kairos time, which means you have to have chronos time too because they're going to take up your time for a little bit. But that's being on mission for God. That's being his ambassador. So here's my recommendation to you. If you don't take anything else out of this and you forget the main point, When you engage people like that, if you don't have time to engage with somebody and hear what's really going on with them, don't ask them. Just say good morning, good afternoon. Don't be fake. If you are going to ask them, then spend time with them. If you don't have time to, at that point in time, at least get to know their name. Just say, hey, Bob, good morning. What was the best part of your weekend? And be ready to engage. Because that's being an ambassador for God. That's building relationships. That's being real and authentic. And it can be a very short conversation, but it can be very meaningful for that person. Think about kairos, quality versus chronos. I think I have it up here for Martin Luther King's. There we go. Martin Luther King, he's talking about happiness. Some of us struggle with finding happy. He said, hey, the surest way to be happy is to seek happiness for others. That's being an ambassador for Christ. Dale Carnegie, some of you may know, he wrote, he wrote the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Let's pull those up. He gives six things out of his book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, and they're pretty good. Just take a, I'm going to read them off to you. Some of the things we've talked about already. Be a good listener. Know the person's name. Be interested in other people. These are all good things. This is what we should be doing. It's just as good moral people. But what is missing in Dale Carnegie? Yeah, he's missing the, the mission and the vision. The title of his book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. We want, to inf- we want to influence people for Christ. We need friendship. We need community. 
but it can't be about you just winning friends and stacking up those friends in your Facebook account. It's got to be about authenticity. We engage in ambassadors for Christ. Charlie Babbitt didn't do that. Charlie Babbitt was, was all about finding his brother and, and getting something out of his brother's executors. He wanted money. He wanted stuff. But if you know the movie, there's a little redemption at the end. But they have a conversation. And Charlie, played by Tom Cruise, when he was a little boy, he had an imaginary friend. This imaginary friend rescued him, and he called him the Rain Man. And in this story, they, he finds out that the reason his brother Raymond was pushed off to an to a institution was there was, a, there was an event when Charlie was a baby, and they had to separate them. And the event was that Raymond rescued Charlie from being hurt as a baby. And what Charlie thought was an imaginary friend was actually his real brother who sacrificed for him. Gave his life to go into an institution for the rest of his life for his brother. So there's a story of redemption. Now, when you watch the movie, there's not a great, beautiful ending to it, but it's about relationships. It's about someone loving someone unconditionally, even, even through their autism. He sacrificed for his brother. God wrapped himself in flesh to sacrifice himself for you. There's a, there's a quiet, still voice that speaks to all of us, whether you're a Christ follower or not. And that's the Holy Spirit calling us and enticing us to him because he sacrificed for you. Jesus paid it all that we may be ambassadors for him. Paul was saying, because of this great gift, because of what I have called you to do to be ambassadors for me, go out into all the world and make disciples be the salt and light in the world, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. And Paul gives us some very specific things here. He says, this is how you ought to work. And I'm going to pause for a second in verse 3 and 4. Paul's asking for that prayer, the prayer that he would do the same. He's not praying to be rescued from his situation. He's praying, well, in my situation, let me be about other people. So if you're in a community group, I encourage you this week to talk about that. What does that look like? What does that look like in your life? There is a warning here, and I'll, I'll close with this. As we grow in the knowledge and wisdom of God, as we go closer to Him, there has to be a level of maturity with that. Because brand new young Christians with a lot of theology can hurt people. I talked earlier this morning about sometimes we can beat people around with our Jesus bat. And I think many of us have been guilty of that at times. We've hurt people. Well-intentioned. But Paul is saying, be mature in Christ. Be gracious to those, out, those on the outside. And entice them to come into the Lord. God never, ever pulls you. He entices you. He welcomes you to come into his relationship with him. And we are to be a part of that. And there may be some of y'all sitting here today that maybe you came with a friend or maybe you're trying to ch check out this Jesus thing, and maybe you see some hypocrisy among Christians. And you know what? You're right. I've been, I've been hypocritical at times. But by the grace of God, He's helping me through this process. 
My father struggled with his walk with Christ for many years because he saw hypocrisy. And we had a conversation. I said, Dad, I got it. I understand. Everybody's fallen. Everybody makes mistakes. But what does that have to do with you and the God that created the universe? Don't let someone else's hypocrisy drive you away from the one true God and recognize that it's Jesus who took your place on the cross for you. It's Jesus who allows us and gives us the opportunity to God to remove you from our domain of darkness and place you into his wonderful kingdom that we may be on mission for him. Sometimes that causes us to kind of put our pride away and to seek the greater things. Let us pray.